Bakın tamam değil. My mama uses power. Thank you for listening. Bye. Finding the right jeans is hard. Accepting your jeans is even harder. Whether you wear boyfriend or bootcut, high-rise or low-rise, this podcast will teach you to love the jeans you are in. I'm Rachel. And I'm Tina. And we're going to use modern research to bust diet myths and get real about body after baby. We're going to take you on a journey of unpacking your old beliefs about food and weight so you can learn to nourish your body and raise body-confident kids. So put your booty in a chair and let's talk mom jeans. Welcome back to Mom Jeans. Woo! I am having some serious celebrity shyness right now. No, I'm so excited for uh, today's episode. And we are going to be spending the entire episode on the term intuitive eating. So as a dietitian, I'm geeking out. So we know that this is quite the buzzword in the anti-diet world today, but this term was actually created all the way back in 1995 when the book Intuitive Eating was published by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. And now, thanks to the co-opting of the term by social media influencers, Intuitive eating is becoming a household term. And this is kind of amazing since we do truly believe that intuitive eating is a path to food peace for so many. But unfortunately, over the years, the term has been misused by proponents of it in the way that so many things do when they are globbed onto without any research. So today we are going to bust some of the common myths we hear about intuitive eating. They are going to be intuitive eating means eat whatever I want whenever I want it. If I give myself unconditional permission to eat, I will never stop. And habituation means to binge on the food until I'm just sick of it and I don't want it anymore. So we're going to give you a history of the origins of intuitive eating, and then we are honored to have the amazing co-author herself, Evelyn Tribley, bust these myths with us. Yay! So what is the official definition of intuitive eating? Well, I will tell you. According to the official intuitive eating website, here is the definition. Intuitive eating is an evidence-based mind-body health approach comprised of 10 principles and is created by two dietitians, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch in 1995. The principles work by either cultivating or removing obstacles to body awareness, a process known as interceptive awareness. Essentially, intuitive eating is a personal process of honoring health by listening and responding to the direct messages of the body in order to meet your physical and psychological needs. Ultimately, you are the expert of your body. Only you know what hunger, fullness, and satisfaction feels like for you. Only you know your thoughts, feelings, and experiences. Intuitive eating is an empowerment tool. It's time to unleash it and liberate yourself from the prison of diet, culture, and weight obsession. And there are 10 principles, as that definition discusses. So for more information on those 10 principles, we are linking the website to Intuitive Eating in our show notes. So you can take a look at them yourself and obviously definitely check out the book for more. So the question is, who is Intuitive Eating for? Essentially, the concept of body attunement and the ability to honor one's physical needs is a basic human right. We obviously live in a world with systemic oppression and poverty that makes the ability to honor one's body very complicated for so many, but the concept of intuitive eating is that we are experts of what our body needs, and for those of us who have been infiltrated by diet culture, we have lost that ability since the bottom line of diet culture is to control our bodies and be hyper-focused on our energy intake and output. Yeah, intuitive eating is an ideal theology of healing for those who have been taught messages at a young age that their body was a problem, that controlling their body through diet and exercise was the only way to have the body they desire, and who have a complicated relationship with food due to high rates of emotional eating, most likely as a result from that negative internal narrative. 
So we want to tell you what the book, workbook, and all that is all about. The Intuitive Eating book actually has four versions that have been tweaked to support updated research and social justice issues that help improve intuitive eating's accessibility. The workbook, there are two options, one for adult and one for teens, is a tool to be used in conjunction to help promote deeper thinking and eating patterns by using their self-reflective assessments, journal prompts, or charts to help you explore your, your relationship with food. And for professionals, there is actually a course that trains you more extensively on the principles and how to apply them to your work with your clients so that intuitive eating is taught in the way it is intended. We highly encourage people to dive into the research articles, blogs, and work done by these exceptional RDs before just experimenting with this process. Now, the theme of many of the myths of intuitive eating is surrounding exactly what intuitive eating is trying to heal, which is not controlling your weight. For so many steeped in diet culture or years and years of yo-yo dieting, they have lived in chronic fear of weight gain with the daily goal of the pursuit of weight loss that the entire mindset and daily habits have become as common as their daily shower or night's sleep. Yeah, the thought of separating from this fear makes intuitive eating seem incredulous. I mean, how can I just eat whatever I want? Won't that impact my body size? Should I just let myself eat whatever until I'm sick of it so I can stop craving those quote-unquote bad foods? Do you hear the same messaging, though? It is fear. Fear of our bodies, fear of fat, fear of loss of control, fear of body change. So people are often willing to try intuitive eating, especially when it's promoted by thin white people on Instagram, if they think that this will finally be the non-diet to end all diets. I can eat what I want and not gain weight? If I make peace with food, will I finally lose the weight? This all seems too good to be true. Ah, once again, all these myths are based in the fear that our bodies will change. So that is the biggest myth that we are here to bust today. Yes. And the truth is that intuitive eating is much more about our relationship with food and movement and nutrition than it is about finding your idolized body size. Intuitive eating goes back to the basics of eating. Understand your hunger signals and eat in response to those signals listening to your fullness, and learning that you can have more now or later. And these two concepts are more tricky if access to food is unrealistic and unreliable. Finding pleasure in food and learning how to have food be enjoyable. And learning where and when you tend to use food to cope with difficult emotions and either giving permission to eat for emotional reasons or seeking out an alternative coping skill to soothe your soul and manage your life stress. And this is all so that food can have its proper place as a pleasurable fuel for your body. Yeah, in that definition, food is flexible, and one's relationship with food is as unique as they are. It embraces your culture and family traditions. It honors your holidays and celebrations. It acknowledges that food is the primary fuel source for energy, so mindfulness about nourishment is important. But it allows food to reduce its power over you because it stays in its lane so you are able to live your life. As we break up with diet culture, it often takes many experiments with normalizing food and exploring how to enjoy food, so that is usually the messaging that gets questioned and confused the most often. So, should we bust this myth? Oh, let's do it. We're going to give you a little info about Evelyn Triboli, who we have on today. Evelyn Triboli is the author of 10 books, including co-author of the best-selling Intuitive Eating, a mind-body self-care eating framework, which has given rise to over 125 studies to date. Her newest book is Intuitive Eating for Every Day, 365 Inspirations and Practices. As an international speaker, Evelyn enjoys training health professionals on how to help their clients cultivate a healthy relationship with food, mind, and body through the process of intuitive eating. Evelyn was the nutrition expert for Good Morning America and a national spokesperson for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics for six years. Evelyn qualified for the Olympic trials in the first ever women's marathon in 1984. Although she no longer competes, she is a wicked ping pong player and avid hiker. To connect with Evelyn, you can find her on Instagram at Evelyn Triboli. Let's get to it. Well, welcome 
to today's episode of Mom Jeans. I have a little bit of goosebumps going on right now as uh, we are sitting here with Evelyn Triboli, a little uh, dietitian crush over here. So uh, thank you, Evelyn, for coming on. I know that I am so excited to have you and um, I know Rachel is as well. So thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. So we are going to jump in. I mean, this episode has a lot of meat to it and no food puns intended. I am ready to uh, dive in, but we are here to bust intuitive eating myths. So I know listeners, we have been busting one myth per episode, but in this episode today, we are going to come at it from multiple angles. We we hear a lot of myths in our sessions about intuitive eating. Diet culture has taken over parts of intuitive eating. So we are here to set the record straight. And who better to do that but Evelyn? So, yes. Thank you. Thank so tell you. us a little bit about who you are and why you're so passionate about busting this myth. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I'm Evelyn Tripley. I'm, I'm co-creator of the intuitive eating uh, framework and model. And this, gosh, our original work was published over 25 years ago in 1995. And now to date, there's over 140 studies on our work showing benefits. So I'm, I'm greatly passionate about it. I mean, I, I train health professionals in this process, help clients in it, and it's incredibly life-changing. And I think what happens is, is once you really begin to trust yourself that you're going inward for your own wisdom and connection, as opposed to outside to some influence or some guru, some, some other type of uh, source of information, you start trusting yourself in other areas in your life and you get your life back. And it's incredibly, incredibly profound and gratifying. And what has happened is it, ha because it has become so popular on the one hand, that's awesome news. Yay. But if you want an example of confusion or co-opting of intuitive eating, the hashtag intuitive eating on, on Instagram. And sometimes the, the confusion just just but sometimes it's co-opting where people at culture that are making money off of misery are using our work to um, support what they're doing and it couldn't be more further from the truth so I get very passionate about this because it causes harm it causes suffering it's why we created the model you know we were working in traditional diet culture ways you know when you are trained in diet culture especially as a dietitian you think you're doing good until you start witnessing the harm over and over again. And Elise and I both went through a, a long phase of cognitive dissonance that this is, doesn't seem right. This isn't working and our patients are feeling really badly about themselves, which is why we went to the research. Like I'm, there's got to be a better way. So we looked at the research, we considered our own clinical experience and, and some other factors uh, in, in creating this model. Well, thank you for doing all of that work so that uh, the rest of us clinicians and dietitians can really benefit and really guide people in um, some true healing. I think what, you know, Rachel and I had come up with three myths that we really wanted to bust. And we wanted to also open up the platform to you to be like, yes, and these are also myths that I hear as well. Sure. Let's go. Yeah. But the three <laughs> that um, we wanted to kind of bust are intuitive eating means I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want. <laughs> okay. If I give myself per unconditional permission to eat, I will never stop. Ah, mm -hmm. And habituation means to binge on the food until I'm sick of it. <laughs> Oh, these are great. Where, where shall we start? <laughs> I know. Let's start with the first one, because that's the one we hear a lot. Like, okay, so you guys are talking about intuitive eating. Does that mean I just eat whatever I want, whatever I want? That sounds so scary. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I do with, with a lot of these myths, I like to validate that it's understandable that there's there's confusion. You know, and what I have seen happen is people get really excited and joyful about their healing. <laughs> and, and they post pictures of, you know, pink cupcakes and donuts, and it might appear like a free-for-all. And what we need to remember, there are 10 principles of intuitive eating and making peace with food is just one of them. And yes, the truth is you can eat whatever you want when you want, but we talk about connection. And what ends up happening is when we remove the excitement, when we remove the drama and the urgency of eating any of these forbidden foods, you're left with, 
um, the question, well, do I really want it right now? Because I, I can have it whenever I want to. That's number one. And number two, do I like how this food feels in my body? And sometimes you don't even know what those answers are because they've been going with such urgency and opportunity when, when, when they get this. And you get to eat in a way that feels good to you. And so I think from people looking outside in, it, it can seem, my gosh, what, what are you doing? And what we have to remember, and I, and I know that you both know this, that there's more to our health than what we put into our bodies, our mental health. And when there's all this guilt and shame and anxiety around food decisions, that's not good for your health too. And so when this free gets gets released or the the shackles get released and you have freedom there's this joy and this this celebration so I think that's why we see that but we also have to remember you know the 10th principle of intuitive eating is on your health with gentle nutrition so there's a lot of dynamic actually the principles are dynamic and, and integrated integrated and so it's not just you just can't take one principle and define that and say that's what intuitive eating is we need to look at the whole picture. So for those who are confused, I get it. Uh, but there's actually a lot more to it. There's a lot more nuances to that as well. And if we hit on that second myth, if I give myself unconditional permission to eat, I'm never going to stop. So I, I, a couple things about this, this one is, first of all, I think it's not actually a myth. It's actually a fear. It's, it's a belief system. So I, I, that's probably one of the biggest fears I hear from my patients that if I start eating these foods, I'm never going to stop. And many times, you know, when someone's been involved in diet culture and diet ma manipulation for the sake of quote, you know, shrinking their body, they engage in loss of control eating. We see this all the time in the research. I see it all the time with my patients and they're shocked when I ask, you ever had loss of control eating? It's like, yeah, how do you know? Well, when you think you're never going to have a food again, it's like, I better hurry up and get it now. I better hurry and get it before I change my mind. And there's urgency and there's excitement. So what we're talking about is novelty. And with this novelty, what this means is this person has not experienced what's called habituation, the ordinariness of this. I mean, by the way, I mean, if you're someone who loves donuts, the donuts will still taste good, but the excitement over it is what changes. And when we can remove that and say, yeah, you can really, you know, have this food and imagine what that would be like if you really had the freedom. You get to ask, do I really want it? Will I enjoy it if I eat it now? And do you want to eat in a way that, that feels good for your body? Or, or, or might you be eating in a way that's very opportunistic? Probably not the, not the latter. Uh, and people often can't imagine getting bored on these foods, you know? And it's not that you necessarily even get bored, but they just become more ordinary like, like leftovers. That's probably my best example around holidays. A lot of favorite foods come out. And, you know, by day three, day four, it's like, eh, you know, it tastes good, but it's not exciting. And that's what this is about. So I would say the fear is really normal. And especially when you think about how fear mongering our culture is, it's understandable that you've had that experience. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that analogy of the leftovers. I'm like, yes, it's so true. Right. Some people are like, I don't want to eat the same thing three days in a row. Right. But if we go all year and prevent ourselves from eating Thanksgiving, even though it's food that we can get all year round, but maybe not, that then they're faced with that meal. And then, oh, you know, we, we eat a bunch of it in this one sitting. But I love how you kind of use that analogy of the excitement and leftovers. So I think you're right about the fear, too. As soon as we label a food as like, oh, I shouldn't have any more of this. That's the media body disconnect right there. Yeah. Very few people fear binging on food that they deem like good or healthy or okay. It's it's the other foods that they feel like, oh, I shouldn't have any more of that. And that's exactly where that disconnect occurs. Well, you know, and you're so right. I've never had a patient come in and say, oh my God, I've got this problem with kale, Evelyn, you got to help me out. Right. You know? Exactly. <laughs> and so one of the things I like to point out, you know, that when there's been a lot of not just deprivation of particular kinds of foods, but you also have caloric restriction, our mind is naturally going to start gravitating towards those foods and wanting those foods. And notice these are foods that give us energy, part of our survival. So that's why we get cravings of, oh my God, I really want pasta. We don't hear cravings of, oh my God, I want broccoli. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. part of it's survival. And then the other thing I look at, I use this analogy a lot. You know, when you hold your breath, and I people know I love to play in the ocean. I, I just started taking up surfing. And when a big sad wave comes, you know, you, 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 you dive down, you hold your breath, and then hopefully when you come back up, the waves are all gone. Sometimes they're not, and you have to hold your breath longer. When you finally hold 
uh, take that inhale. It's a ginormous inhale for life and no one says oh my god you've got loss of control oh my gosh you are addicted to air you better watch it you got a problem <laughs> you binge on everyone air. knows yeah exactly and everyone knows oh that's a natural compensatory response to air deprivation and we need to have that same perspective or it certainly helps having that perspective so one thing to keep in mind even though someone might intentionally go on some kind of diet or quote some kind of lifestyle change where you're trying to shrink your body uh the cells just view this as oh my god she's trying to kill me it's the self-induced famine and so there's going to be this kind of compensatory mechanisms and if we can start viewing it that way it's like oh on the one hand, yeah, it doesn't feel good to eat in such an urgent way, but it's really understandable. And so what ends up happening then, there's a lot of disruption and trust that goes on. A person stops trusting their body. I've had people say, and I don't know if this would be in one of your myths, but you know, well, intuitive eating seems like an awesome thing for other people, but I don't trust my body. And I will sometimes respond, but, you know, I wonder if your body trusts you. And they'll say, well, what do you mean? Well, how do you treat it? Are you kind to it? Do you feed it on a regular basis, you know, or do you withhold food? And so what happens is, is if there's this chaos and inconsistency on eating, you're going to have loss of control eating as, as a consequence, not because your body's not working quite the opposite. It is trying to save you. And so those are some things that I look at. In fact, it's, it's, it's a topic I have in a new book coming out and that is you know cultivating trust and so what i want people to know who are listening is you might truly feel you can't be trusted around food and that's understandable usually based on the experiences that you have but your body is you know works your body is not broken this is a natural compensatory response when there's inconsistent access to food or too much working out and so on i want to kind of flip it into parents and guidance towards children because I I work with a lot of parents who say oh my kid binge eats right or um, I'm trying to think of a myth that they just a lot of mistrust with their kids eating like if my kid goes to the birthday yeah, party they won't that. stop eating the cupcakes <laughs> and, and I feel and I get anxiety because I just watch them just eat and eat and eat totally or if we give unconditional permission to eat and we're following division of responsibilities then if I my kid is gonna want 10 cookies right so this this isn't a great system so that's the well, fear, that's the fear right? yeah. and so what guidance can you give towards parents to let their kids be intuitive eaters, to let their kids just really trust themselves and hone in on that skill that is, you know, natural if this family does have accessibility to food and, and all of that, right? Yeah, good point about access. So, you know, one of the things I do with this is I, I back up for a moment and I, I propose this idea, which is usually... Um, really taken in quite well. And that is what would it be like to end the legacy of diet culture in your family? Because when a parent expresses these kinds of fears to me, it's often a projection of their own fears about their own eating. That's what I see over and over again. They haven't trusted their body. And often they've, they've suffered a lot in diet culture. And they don't want their kids to suffer. So I see the intention. They, they don't want their kids to be suffering. Uh, and sometimes parents have fears that they're going to be judged based on how their kids are eating or so on. And so I start with that as an aspiration. And because the idea of dismantling diet culture is really big, you know, the whole culture, and it's everywhere, as you know, it's in, in healthcare. But the idea that we can end it at, in your own family and at your kitchen table, I find it to be incredibly empowering. And so then we look at what would the parent need in order to trust that the kids knows how to self-regulate. So let me so let me say this in the opposite way. It's funny, we don't talk about this in the book, but I think it sh we should make this known. That the research we did with intuitive eating, formulating the model, uh, comes a lot from the research of L.L. Birch. He was a seminal researcher in the parent-child feeding relationship. You know, having the obsessionality towards foods that are forbidden, that came from her research. And the fact that that which you forbid, the kid ends up becoming more focused on those very foods they're not allowed to have. That creates sneak eating. That doesn't feel good to the kid. Or it creates over 
excitement at these parties, you know, if there's rigid rooms, rigid rules at home. And let me also say, I think it is really humbling to be a parent. Mm -hmm. I've got two adult kids and I still get humbled sometimes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we want the best for our, our kids but sometimes in this quest for the for wanting the best for our kids we do things that have an impact that aren't helping and so if instead we can create this um, this idea of not only stopping legacy of diet culture in your own family but creating trust that your kid can trust their own signals because I'll tell you it's also a powerful trust disruptor when a parent is constantly controlling their kids in, uh, intake and that's been also L. Birch's research as well it actually creates more problems so the intent is good but it creates more problems that's that's the part and that, that's shocking for a lot of parents to hear and so what I will say is I'd rather both parents if we're talking about a two-parent household have buy-in to this idea than one person to feel ambivalent and the, and the child gets mixed messages so what does the parent need in order to embrace intuitive reading and what I find from the work that I do because I may I work mainly with adults I have worked with families but with the adults that I work with, they've experienced such healing. They want that for their kids too. Oh my gosh, how can I create this in my, for my, for my family, for my kids? So it's really, really possible. But first you have to start with yourself. That's what I would say. Yeah, I love that. And I love how you bring in the point that like both parents do need to be in a buy-in because like I work with yeah. a lot of families of split homes, right? So like the kid will stay with one side for a couple of days and the other side for a period of time. And even if one side is like, you know, practicing this and giving permission to eat, the kid goes to the other house and feel deprived. It literally undoes every single thing that we've been working on. And the kid comes back to the intuitive eating house and has been in deprivation mode. So naturally, like you're saying, cells are responding. Kid is engaging in deprivation eating. Yeah. And, yeah, and compensatory. Yeah, and that's outside of their control because of the previous environment. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's about, and, I, and I've been involved in many, many split families like this. And, and that's what I said, I would love to have, let's, let's look at what we have in common here. And that is the well-being of, of your child. And once again, talking about, so there's some parents that they will use as their way of communicating <laughs> the issues around the eating. And we have to remember mental health and that the more we create this doubt, it, it perpetuates more problems. And so what can we do uh, together to be consistent on this? And this is where I encourage, you know, parents who have trouble with this idea, they're not on board. It's like, okay, what, what do you need in order to know? What do you need in order to feel good about this, this model? How can I help you? How can I support you? Whether it's giving them more resources to read and those types of things, because, uh, it's a gift they end up giving to their kids, you know? Yeah, it's a great concept, though, because there's so much we can't control. Like, yeah, we can control our own home. We might not be able to control other homes. We certainly cannot control high school and what they're learning in health class or what their friends are talking about. So it it is really humbling as a parent to go, hey, I'm going to try to do the work. I'm going to try to make sure that my family dinner table holds certain values. But I know that my kid's going to leave my home and they're going to get different messages. So I'm, I'm curious how you've coached parents or how you've even handled I know you've raised two kids as well in diet culture um as, and even as the expert I'm sure they came home and asked you questions so how do you have these conversations with kids about what they're learning what they're hearing ah uh, you know if we just you just take it as it comes and like you said if, if we consider this almost more like one of your values as a family where we have open discussions about this you know probably one of the biggest things i did besides conversation was not get into power struggles and i will never forget i hadn't even talked to my daughter about this my my daughter is a high school spanish teacher so i mean she's definitely an adult's got two kids of her own and she went through this phase where like she hated salads and vegetables or whatnot and I thought okay she's a teenager I, I she's gonna do whatever she's gonna do and I just decided not to give any kind of lectures or moralistic actually I wouldn't do moralistic stuff anyway and sure enough it was just a phase that she went into and guess who who loves salads now and so it's so part of what this is is, is looking at this idea that all bodies are worthy of dignity and respect we don't gossip about bodies and the same thing with food. We don't denigrate foods and we don't reify them either. And I'll tell you, for the parents out there listening, I, I'm going to tell you something that just warms my heart. I haven't really talked about this. It's, it's kind of a funny story. It's personal. Um, so when my daughter was, was uh, just had her first baby, unbeknownst to me, 
she wanted to learn more about baby led weaning, which is really intuitive eating for babies. <laughs> and it's what you do when you're weaning them off of, of on, when you're weaning them onto solids. And unbeknownst to me, she ended up contacting Feeding Littles, which you may, who you may or may not be familiar with. And, and they responded back. And when my daughter read the note, she goes, oh, well, you know what? My mom uh, actually created the intuitive eating model. I don't know if this is going to be really something. Anyways, uh, Megan, the dietitian on the team, was so taken back by that. She goes, I'm going come and, to come and take my class. You're gonna, I'm going to comp you because of your mother. And so uh, now she says that her, my, my grandbaby went through her training. So fast forward, here we are now in the pandemic. And I'm going to tell you something. This is a, a, a little silver lining that has happened is because I wasn't able to see my grandkids. I have little books. So I read to them almost every night. And they're usually sitting in their high chairs, finishing up dinner. Now, the little one is only about nine months old. So there's not really conversation. But to watch them self-feed and self-regulate is such a gift, you know. Um, and so that's what I say. So it's beautiful to watch this next generation. And for all the parents listening out there, and you're thinking, oh, no, I'm not doing this. I'm messing up. It's like, you know what, you can begin anywhere. And parenting is humbling. And we let go of the things that aren't serving yourself or your family. And now that you're learning different, you can do differently. And it's okay if maybe you're intrigued by this idea and scared to move forward. And that's where I would look at getting more support, maybe doing some more reading and those types of things. And this is how we change culture, you know? So, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I love that. Yeah. Um, Isn't it sweet? I love it. <laughs> so I want to kind of swing over a sec. I had touched on it briefly, but about the accessibility piece, because I think oh, yeah. we, you know, do commonly hear myths about like, well, but okay, if I'm eating what I want with body attunement, um, honoring my cues, honoring health, you know, with gentle nutrition, all going through these principles how does this work with individuals that don't have consistent access or going through micro aggressions and micro traumas and, you know, how does intuitive eating apply to them? That's a really good question. And I'm starting to get more of those questions, which I'm really glad. So when someone doesn't either have access to food or the, or, or not enough money or it's inconsistent, we, we shift how we might define satisfaction satisfaction might just be what can I eat for a meal that's going to fill my belly and sustain me and match my budget. And there's no shame in that. I want to stress that. The other thing I think is really important to know is, is the research that's coming out showing that there's a history of food insecurity. It really seems to be associated with some eating disorders, especially binge eating and, and bulimia. And so when we start looking at that, you know, it kind of makes sense that when the body has been through a trauma and food insecurity is, is a form of trauma, especially when it's, there's a lot of chronicity to it, it's, it's threatening your survival. It would make sense then that when you have access to food, you might find you're wanting more. There's nothing wrong with you. Your body is surviving. And if shame on top of that, that's really problematic. The other thing that's related to this too um, is, is looking at, you know, hunger and, and fullness. I believe that because diet culture is so binary, pass or fail, stop or go, people believe that they have to be precise on eating on hunger and precise on fullness. It's like, no, this is learning and discovery. Let's see what happens. The truth is, well, this is where aiming for satisfaction in general can be really helpful because it's not satisfying to undereat ultimately, and ultimately not satisfying to eat to a point that you feel uncomfortably full. So looking at all these things, and also that in related to what you were saying, you know, uh, eating doesn't have to be a 10. I've had people think that, oh my God, this meal has to satisfy me to a 10. <laughs> it's like, no, sometimes it's ordinary. Sometimes it's like a pair of sensible shoes that does the job. Maybe you're exhausted and the best that you can do today is you're just gonna push a microwave button and dinner is gonna be popping out in just a minute whether that's because of your energy level or financial status, whatever it happens to be. And that's really, that's really okay. And, you know, we talked earlier about making peace with food, but that also means not having to explain why you're eating or not eating something. Many if you, if it turns out you're really in the mood for a salad, great. You don't have to explain that you're not going back into diet culture and those types of things, you know? So it's, it's moving away from this binary, this perfectionistic idea. And that's where I see some people struggle that, no, this is actually, these are all learning opportunities. You may, may have made a decision 
it wasn't satisfying or didn't feel good, that's okay. Let's take a look now, learning from this, what might you do differently if you had the same set of circumstances? It's not, it's not failure, it's learning, you know? Yeah, intuitive eating has yeah. so much grace in it because it has so much body attunement and no body is a robot. <laughs> so every single day, our bodies are gonna crave and want different things. One day we might want, want something spicy and warm and the next day we might want something sweet and cold and like, I always tell people, like, you don't control those cravings or those desires. That is your body doing its thing and trying to communicate to you. And your job is to really figure out how to honor that yeah. and respect it in the same way. Yeah. And, you know, and, and related to all of that stuff, too, in terms of cravings, I, I think it's important to acknowledge that food is connection. And especially when we're talking about families and meals and life events and celebrations, you know, we need to get back to the pleasure and the joy of eating and, and letting go of the, the fear mongering and, and, and the food police thing because it's, it's not serving our health and it's taking away that, that joy of eating. And that is a myth that comes up often in my practice. People will say, okay, so you're telling me I just have to eat whatever I crave? Like th that's it? Like tell me, tell me about the craving. So could you speak more on that? Like how, do, how does honoring your, what does honoring your cravings mean and where does this get construed a little bit that you hear? Oh my gosh, that, that's, that can get really, really deep. And so, because cravings itself can be all different kinds of things, or even hungers can be. There can be the biological hunger or biological craving, but there also can be reflections of things that might be missing in your life or things that you, that you need, you know? And so, one of the things I look at when we're working with cravings or even making peace with food, it's not only what sounds good in terms of honoring a craving, but what's going to feel good. That's often a missing piece I hear uh, when I read on social media what people are, how they're interpreting intuitive eating that, yeah, you can eat want, yes, you can honor your cravings, but let's also consider how is it going to feel in your body? Is it going to sustain you? So for example, when it's hot, you might be craving a salad for an entree and that's, you know, that's, that's, that can be awesome. I, I happen to enjoy salads. I also know if that's all I had, it's not going to sustain me, you know, and so it might be based on past experiences or based on what you think would be true. What can I add with this meal that's going to also help sustain me and feel good as well, you know, and so that's what I look at, especially when we're looking at, at craving kinds of things is when you finish eating, how did you feel? And I will often use um, descriptive language, like hedonic tone, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And if it was unpleasant, huh, what, what might you do differently? Now, it's interesting that people often want to blame the food if they didn't feel good, but I like to look, step back and look at the bigger picture. So what was going on when you were, you know, eating the food? Were you really enjoying it? And sometimes people get into these gray areas where they're giving themselves, I would call pseudo permission to eat something. They behaviorally eat something, but their mind is somewhere else. Their mind is counting macro or calories are compensating and and they're also disconnected from their bodies and so and and, and this is a, a common thing that people go through so don't panic if anyone's listening saying oh my god that's what i'm doing right now <laughs> but it's also about staying connected staying connected with your body to the degree that you can and so it's simple and powerful at the same time it kind of reminds me like when we talk about meditating or meditation you know most common meditation instruction is about following your breath because we all breathe basically Sounds easy until you start the practice of it. And what I want people to consider is that in our culture, what has been reinforced over and over again is not listening to your body. It's the opposite. It's like doing what authority people say to do. Do this, do this, do this. And then that's at the expense of you getting to know your body. So in the beginning, it can feel really confusing. I've had patients feel really panicky, you know, and it's like, well, how often have you been listening to your body up until now? Never? Oh, it makes sense. Two weeks in that this frustrating of course said, welcome to your humanity you know <laughs> funny story about listening to your body my little girl yesterday ate a donut for breakfast or after breakfast and she left probably a bite and a half but bless her heart she goes wrap this up for me for later because that's part of what i've taught my kids to do it's okay to push it away and save it for later you know listen to your body she goes i'm gonna listen to my body right now because yesterday when i had the donut i ate the whole thing and my stomach hurt when i was in math oh my goodness and wow. so bless her little heart i like wrapped up in a napkin this little like messy soggy <laughs> bite, and bite and a half of a donut and just was like i'm like whatever i'll just put it there and let her think about it but 
bless her heart, she learned yesterday, you know what? By my second period, I didn't feel so good. And so I'm going to I'm gonna honor my body, but I still want the donut. It's delicious. But I'm, I'm going to kind of... I'm going to kind of experiment here. So I thought that was really cute. That is, that is profound. That's powerful. It's a great story. I feel like those experiences are what children need, that if we interject and tell them, oh, you can only eat this much or you, you can't have that for breakfast because that's not a breakfast. Like all this crap that we're fed literally in our heads, no pun intended there. <laughs> it's crap that we're fed in our minds that – our kids need to have these life experiences for them to figure it out. We're not going to be with them for the rest of their lives, helping them design their plates. We need to actually give them the true tool. And that true tool is body trust, yeah, absolutely. right? Body attunement. Yeah. Um, I want to shift it. This is a little off the cuff, okay. but just because you're here, I'm like, do you ever get so pissed <laughs> that everyone is jacking up intuitive eating and making it a diet? Like, I'm so curious. Oh, I do. Like, oh, my God. <sighs> In fact, I just did a post. When was it? In late December. Um, it, it's, it's one of my most popular posts. I think I've done it two or three times. It's called How to Spot, How to Spot Fake Intuitive Eating. And, and, and it really, it, I'll tell you when it, when it really infuriates me. It's not when people misinterpret it on their own. That, that's going to happen. That's human error. But it's when people, health professionals or influencers, uh, yes. misinterpret it or misdefine it, or they define it without even reading the model. They didn't even go to our, what, this is, you know what, this, I'm going to give you a really good example. This is topical. So Kaiser Permanente wrote a piece on intuitive eating. And it was so messed up. It was not intuitive eating. They took our principles and redefined them how they want to do it. And I forget when it actually got published. It was at a time in my life I didn't have time or bandwidth to address it and someone else did. And I, I couldn't believe they didn't have the decency to contact Elise self to get an opinion or to at least read the book or the actual principles because they wouldn't have published that otherwise. And that adds to confusion. And then when we see, um, I've seen weight loss influencers talk about intuitive eating, that, that kind of, yeah, so yeah, that really, so what, I, what I'm doing now, because I get people contact me all the time, it's like, oh my God, did you see this? So I, I, I have a, a leadership social justice coach who I love, her name is Desiree Adway. And she's got this mantra. In fact, I'm using it in this new book. And her, her mantra for engaging in people in terms of educating them is this. Are they reachable, teachable, and ready? And if the answer is yes, she's going to engage and, and reach out. If the answer is no, she won't. And, and I've, I've modified it a little bit. And I'll say, and do I have the bandwidth? Because I get contacted all the time. And what I'm trying to do now with the people that I've trained is to train, is to teach them. It's like, here, here's a white paper on intuitive eating. You can go advocate. You have... The tools to do this because if I stopped every single time to go clean up someone's mess of co-opting I don't get to move forward and do some good in the world you know and it's it's negative energy of type of drain so anyway on this post what I added is that you have to remember the first level of intuitive eating, reject the diet mentality. So if any program, person, service, or app is telling you to count calories, count macros, categorize foods in ways to limit your eating, that is a diet. They don't get to say that they do intuitive eating. That's, that's what gets me. It messes it up. It messes up one of the core intentions of intuitive eating to begin with. So, so I, I can get really worked up. <laughs> So thank oh, you. Oh, I can't even Tina. imagine. Yeah. I'm like, how do you even have a life? I feel like every time I turn on, you know, social media or read an article or whatever, it's like somewhere it's you you spot the fake, right? Yeah. The fake intuitive eating. And if I, I'm like just curious, right? Like, do you have a life outside of fighting for intuitive eating? And it sounds like you do. Yes, very good. Boundaries. I do. No, you know what? I have. I have great, in fact, I'll tell you what the real, the litmus test came was when Jillian Michaels decided to go onto our website and read the 10 principles and did a video on it. And I got so many people tagging me. Some people sent me the video and I, yeah, I started yeah. to watch it and I just couldn't because the attitude was so, it was, it was, it was, yeah. And, and then I thought, 
I don't need to address a bully who has no intention because I see how she has treated people on The Biggest Loser. And it's like me putting energy in this, all this does is amplify her name and her message. I'm not going to get into the mud with her. And I had some people that were quite shocked at that. And I said, you know, I need to conserve my own energy for creating good. And this is just yeah. a lot of negativity. This is not a reachable, teachable moment. No. Right? And it yeah. was the first time I can honestly say I didn't feel, I didn't feel conflicted. Like, oh, I should really, it's like, no, she's got her own agenda. She makes money off of what she does. And it's unfortunate. And at the same time, here's where I'm really careful. I want to say this to everyone who's still on the fence, any health professionals out there, is that, as I was saying earlier, it's really common to be in, in cognitive dissonance in the beginning. When you start hearing all this, and especially, we didn't really talk a lot about the research today, but I, I get into the research really heavily about how intentional weight loss is problematic, how, how it predicts more problems with, you know, eating disorders, weight stigma, fat phobia, and PS, it predicts more weight gain, and two-thirds of people will actually gain more weight than what they lost as the research shows us over and over again it's so problematic so it's um normal when you have been been raised and taught diet culture so i'm thinking most healthcare professionals such as dietitians such as physicians and there's many more but these are the most classic ones where they hear this research they hear the model of intuitive eating and now they have at least five years of experience is what i've seen with their own patients and realizing oh my god this weight-centric model's not working and yet because it's been so indoctrinated in their training uh, they go through cognitive dissonance. I'd say that that's really normal. And so one of the things I do now when someone gets frustrated because they're working with a parent who doesn't get it or they're working with a patient who doesn't get it, it's like, how long did it take you for to embrace this model? Oh, I say, yes, we need to have grace, you know? So I don't want to shame people if they're not ready to, to exit diet culture. I do have concerns though for health professionals that are perpetuating harm. It's like, read the research, you know? And, and for some people, it becomes like a religion. It becomes part of their identity. But I'm seeing more doctors um, actually stepping up. There were a couple of recent posts on Instagram by doctors who acknowledged the harm and the shame they felt perpetuating weight stigma when at the time they thought they were helping, you know? So, yeah, we're in a big place. Luckily, I'm about to be on this uh, weight-inclusive panel for a bunch of med students Ooh. that are in their postdoctorate of some sort and it here in Austin where this, um, you know, school is, without dropping any information, the school is saying, hey, wait, we recognize how this weight-centric approach is, is not effective. And so we're wanting to bring in more information about weight stigma and health at every size and intuitive eating and oh, awesome. you know, really challenging this weight-centric um, kind of view. And so um, I was really excited to um, have that opportunity to provide, to provide these students with education of being like, oh my gosh, yes, this is the step forward, right? Because right, otherwise... Right. We're just perpetuating this cycle of continuous dieting and, you know. Well, you know what, what it gets me? So, so when I talk to doctors, this is what I will say. First of all, I recognize their humanity. You know, they're here to help and they're so busy. They don't have time to read all the, the research. So they tend to rely on the policies of their health organization, which are really rooted in fat phobia, unfortunately. But when you start reading the body of research on how it doesn't work, it doesn't work and it causes harm and it causes more harm. Uh, if this was a medication, it would never be approved. So how on earth can you put this under the guise of, of, of evidence-based medicine? It just is beyond me. You know, until you start, until we start doing deeper dives, when you start looking at uh, the, the, you know, the root phobia, you know, it's rooted in, in racism. And Sabrina String's book, Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia, does a profound job of connecting all the dots. Or you look at the Simmelweis reflex, which is phenomenon for the doctor who discovered hand washing can save lives. Now it's kind of funny because we all know, especially with the pandemic, we've got to wash our hands. But back in, I think, the 17th century, when he discovered this and did a small study, doctors just laughed at him. They scoffed at him. It's like, oh, this is ridiculous. We're gentlemen. We don't need to wash our hands. We're not killing our patients. And he was literally laughed out of medicine. 
And the Simmelweis reflex is named after him when this phenomenon occurs, and it's occurred in medicine over and over again. And that is when, a, when new research comes in that disputes the popular paradigm, it is met with incredulity, you know? And we saw that with E. coli, you know, when the two docs that discovered E. coli is actually what causes ulcers, not lifestyle, they were also met with uh, incredulity by the medical elite till finally one of them said, you know what, I'm gonna give myself the infection and I'm gonna prove it to everybody. And they got the Nobel Prize in, in medicine, you know? So this happens and you know doctors are obviously are people too and medicine happened in a, va a vacuum we are impacted by our our culture so one of the things that just really gets me patients don't want to see their doctors or health provider because they don't want to get the the, the 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 finger wagging and the lecture about weight and this has also been shown in in the research as well so that's a problem for healthcare too in terms of managing people's health if you know avoiding healthcare. which by the way i i i understand that when you're getting that kind of attitude so we got a we got a big problem here so I know we can keep chatting about this for hours and hours and hours. Um, and we appreciate you coming on and, and busting the very few myths and for opening up and telling us some personal stories and also how you're, you're fighting that <laughs> internal anger and advocating for intuitive eating. We, yeah. we so appreciate that. Is there anything you want to plug or... Where can listeners find you? It, it, it sounds so silly, but please tell us where can listeners find you? Oh, yes. yeah, I'm happy to do that. Uh, if they want to find me, I'm most active right now on, on Instagram. So it's at Evelyn Tribbley. Uh, my website's evelyntribbley.com. And oh, gosh, I'm, I'm ignoring the obvious. Intuitiveeating.org and the community. We have a free online peer-to-peer -peer support community. We, already, we have over 21,000 people. So that's a way to get free, free support, free information. And then I've got a new book coming out I'm really excited about called Intuitive Eating for Every Day. 365 daily practices and inspirations. And because I've had patients say, oh, I wish I could put you in my pocket or they write down things I'd say and then they repeat it back to me. It's like this, let's, let's come up with a book thing. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. When does that come out? It comes out March 16th. So just in a, in a, in a month or so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time. I know you get to your exactly what you said inundated with requests. So we we so appreciate that you. Well, thank you, and I'm you I'm, I'm thrilled that you're. Us. Yeah, no, I'm thrilled that you're 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 sharing the message. So I'm thrilled to be here. I really appreciate being here. That is a wrap on this episode of the MythBuster series, and we hope this information provides you with a more critical lens when you hear mainstream diet culture messaging. Please reach out to the person interviewed to connect with them in the ways they listed, or you can check out our social media pages at Mom Jeans the Podcast for details on the episode and to find our guests' information. And if you love the episode, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes and recommend this episode to a friend. Sending you the inner strength to accept your jeans with a G and wear the jeans with a J. Bye! This episode of Mom Jeans was produced and edited by Rachel Coleman and Tina LaBoy. Just a reminder, this episode is not a substitute for therapeutic counsel or nutrition advice. Thank you to Jerry DePizzo for the music production. You can find episode information and show notes at www.momjeansthepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at momjeansthepodcast.com and join the Mom Jeans the Podcast Facebook group to find a community of mamas learning to love their bodies and discussing the episodes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mom Jeans. See you next time.